Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 73 and my guest is Lily Waters from the charity that assists prisoners on their release from prison. She meets them inside and outside in an attempt to help them reintegrate back into society. And that's a tough job. Given that 60% of inmates go on to commit further crimes within two years of release, her work is fundamental in the struggle to reduce the people she works with re-offending. But as you will hear, it's a challenge. And with no financial support from the government, you have to wonder if there is a real desire to protect you, the public, from becoming a victim of crime. But let me start, Lily, by asking you to to introduce yourself. If you were standing like you did in front of me and said, look, this is what I do and this is what I try to do what I do, what would you say? That's a really great question, In the bare bones of it, I would say my name is Lily. I work really hard to give offenders and ex-offenders a voice. And I do that through studying a law degree primarily to give me the knowledge of the system, but also through working for an incredible charity, criminal justice charity called Sussex Pathways, And we get to work both inside the prison and in communities to support offenders and ex-offenders to to make positive change. How did you how did you find your way on this trajectory? How did you find your way on this this path? From as young as I can remember, I've been fascinated by, I think, what I call the human condition. Why do we do what we do? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much kind of breakdown between people? And, you know, I've always been fascinated 
by this idea of of the human being and the human mind and as a child I grew up really close to um, a secure unit so like a category a secure unit for what was described to me as the worst of the worst people who are you know sick and have committed horrendous heinous crimes and they can't be around other people and I used to walk from my house as a child like maybe eight or nine years old and I used to walk and I used to stand at the gates of this this establishment that was all you know it was I mean it was terrifying I mean I was very small so <laughs> it made it look so much more grandiose and can I you just, mention which establishment it was yes yeah, so it's in in Sussex it's the Hellingly Centre and it is small but there have been some prolific offenders some some of um some really 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 famous I won't go into who and when and but yeah it's it's held some of the worst or what some people would say are are the worst um and I remember being told that information really young and just probably out of trauma and curiosity becoming fascinated with that as a concept how could you end up there and I used to walk there from the back of my house and you know there were fields and things and and I my friends and the neighbors kids would all kind of have a look around and I used to stand and watch and think wow how how does this happen so really that's when it was born and then obviously I lived a life (laughs) from then until now and that life has been made up of many many painful challenging traumatic experiences that have exposed me to people of all kinds behaviors of all kinds drugs alcohol crime abuse I mean that the period of time from about 10 to 20 those 10 years were eye-opening scary frightening you know there was a lot of challenges that I personally faced but what never left me was um, a curiosity, a curiosity to always ask, why is this happening? You know, why am I in these situations? Why are people, you know, behaving this way towards me? And, you know, in kind of adolescence and up into my 20s, there was this pattern of men, men that were coming into my life and out of my life, always much older, um, that caused me trouble. And yeah that kind of carries into some some more kind of specific personal experiences that I'm happy to talk about that eventually when I became a mum to a boy that was the moment becoming a mother to a son that was the moment where I had to kind of take stock take inventory of what is the the world like for men for boys And that began a train of thought that led me to the work that I'm doing now to try and repair some of the harm. It's really interesting, actually, because um, my intention was not to talk to you about your own personal journey. But given that you've, you've, you know, kind of mentioned that you're where you are right now because of the things that you've experienced in your own life. And you said you're happy to talk about them and feel free to talk about what you want to talk about in order to contextualize what it is that we're talking about, which is the work you do in prison. But I suppose it takes a certain kind of person to sit down with 
a certain kind of prisoner, especially as a female in a male prison, and to navigate the kind of behaviour that these guys will, I don't know what the word is, towards you, not in a sexual way, not in an aggressive way, not in a manipulative way, you know, and alongside all that comes that kind of welcoming way that you are even taking the time and trouble to to want to help these kinds of guys. Let me ask you, how, how do the guys that you work with today compare with the guys that you talked about a moment ago who were in your life when you were 10 until you were 20 and tens of in young age to be talking about trials and troubles and tribulations? So, you know, start where you want to start, Lily. So how do these guys compare with the guys who traumatized your life, interfered with your life, disrupted your life, corrupted your life, and, and gave you all the excitements that come with that, because often with the bad comes the good, because you go with the bad because of the good that yeah. comes with the bad, etc., yeah, etc. Right. You tell mm. me. They're all the same. We are all the same. That's That's the key thing that I've really learned. If you choose to look at any individual whether they are um, a convicted criminal, whether they are a prisoner or whether they are, you know, a, a man, woman, family member, partner, friend, stranger, you will see traits within everyone that you can identify, that I can identify with in, in myself. And the first time that I sat across a coffee table in Costa Coffee, my very first one-to-one meet with an offender who had just been released from um, serving a term in prison, they could have been anyone. And that was so striking to me that we are just having a conversation as two human beings. And I think there are similarities. I've, I've, I've very much escaped getting in trouble with the law myself. But that was largely because I was young, I was quite clever. I was, you know, kind of hiding behind groups of older guys that I was spending time with, taking drugs with. Um, I was involved in little bits of sex work and things in exchange for drugs. And so I really have come across men quite heavily, different ages, different walks of life. And, And yeah, there was damage done to me as a result of that. And for a while... I felt very angry towards men in general. You know, I felt this, that we have like such a broken society that men are able to behave in this way and they are able to exploit people in the way that I had felt exploited and abuse women in the way that I had felt abused and had been abused. And there was a a slight interim on on becoming a, um, a parent and looking into, like most parents do, Okay, how am I going to parent this this small little infant innocent boy? And I discovered so much about what goes into people making the choices that they do, what's behind our behaviors, and I couldn't help but relate that to my past, relate that to all these horrific experiences that I had had. And that developed in me a compassion and understanding towards people my anger my bitterness started to go I felt less of a victim and I was more interested in like okay 
I think there's a problem here. There's a problem here in, in the way that we deal with negative behavior in general as a whole. Because if there are reasons and feelings and experiences behind these behaviors, then there can be a solution. And all of this thinking and kind of curiosity and understanding into what I call the human condition <laughs> and why why people choose to behave and make negative choices, that all carries forth into when I'm sat across a room or on a bus or standing outside the prison or inside the prison with someone who's made poor choices. You know, there's, there's a human being who nine times out of 10 has been in a position where their options are limited. The choices they can make are limited. The injustices they have felt have led them into the justice system. And whenever I go into a meeting with an offender or or really with anyone, I choose to see that we are the same. It's that kind of unconditional and non-judgmental practice that creates a space for a connection. In that way, to answer your question, there are so many similarities between the men I work with now and the men that affected me in, in my life. I'm just not a victim now. I, I'm intrigued by, by again, your tease of, of what your life was like. You mentioned drugs, taking, being with older men, sex work. And that you were, uh, you use words like exploitation, victim. And I just want to clarify and understand you, Lily, because it really sets you up for the work that you do and, and what you've just expressed. Are you saying your life was not out of choice or that your life was out of choice? I, I mean, because for me, when you're exploited, when you're doing things for drugs, um, it's either because you're a drug addict, maybe, or you're working for someone. Just clarify for me, as much as you want to, how you found yourself in a situation where you were kind of on this spiral of drugs, sex work, being with older men, because it then, I think, contextualizes how you see men in a way that others who have not been through that journey and can look a man in the eye in a different way that, that you can. So just briefly when you say exploitation and felt a victim and angry towards men, that sounds to me like you went through quite an abusive period in your life. Yeah, sure. It's really important to clarify because I think I'm making suggestions that can mean a lot of different things to different people. And and for me, really early in, in adolescence, I, I struggled. I struggled with my mental health. Uh, mental health was a, a, a big problem. And having come from actually a, a really loving, really wholesome kind of family environment, I felt very much like this internal turmoil that I am I'm, I'm experiencing, these you know, being 10, 11, 12 years old and, and feeling such depression and um, having such difficulties, there was no place for that. There was no, that didn't fit in in the environment that I was growing up in, right? So, so I was trying to deal with it internally and as wonderful and, and as compassionate and kind as my parents are, I couldn't communicate that and so I isolated myself. I and and through the years 
I developed a number of strategies to deal with the the pain that I was in. And eventually there was a, a point when I was about 15 and my parents separated and I decided to leave home that that was it for me I I was not attending school I was I had mixed with as I described older men people who were drinking a lot taking a lot of drugs you know and and I'm talking I'm 15 they're at minimum 25 so I was very much child they were very much the adults but I felt a safety and a validation um in that group that I'd found where I felt I could be and share all of these feelings. And not only could I share them and feel the validation that perhaps a 25-year-old man can give a 15-year-old teenager, there was an expectation for me to play to a role. And I was very quickly involved in things that were way too old for me and required me to make a decision. Do I carry on studying and you know, having this really nice mapped out version of my life that I didn't believe I could achieve, not not with the the state that I was in, um, you know, and, and having been put on, on antidepressants at about age 12 or 13. And, you know, my parents not really being equipped to deal with eating disorders and self-harm and the fact that I was going out and mixing with people and they very much didn't have a handle on it. So I didn't feel that that was a safe place for me to be. And one day I just made the decision, that's it, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. My parents separated. They are very happily married now, though. And and I left home and I thought, I'm going to do this my way. And, and it was a painful way. It was a painful way. I left college a month before actually sitting my A-levels, so I didn't get my A-levels. And I was working full time, I was earning money, I was working in a bar. So again, lots of adult interactions. And eventually, I had a a stream of what I thought were really cool, mature relationships that actually were, were very much using me for sex in exchange for drugs, in exchange for somewhere to stay, in exchange for these things. And I didn't see what that was at that time. And there were some quite nasty situations that I ended up being in, quite violent. I was would have a, a boyfriend who was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years older than me, and I would have to sleep with his friends in order to, you know, maintain the peace and and for him to have drugs and there was there were these like low level elements of me actually feeling under threat and to me I felt I'm you know receiving some kind of validation from this and and after a while I just became more and more and more unwell and I didn't think that it was a concern to receive physical abuse emotional abuse from from men because it was when they'd been drinking a lot or when they'd been taking certain drugs um you know and we're not talking smoking weed I mean I think by the time I was by the time I was 19 I'd had all the drugs all the drugs and that wasn't a a concern to me were you a drug Um, addict would you say you were a a raving drug addict as they say I mean or somebody that indulged because it sounds to me like you were so far gone in your life in the relationships you were in, in the people you were 
you were socialising with that would you say that drugs was the beginning and the end of your day? Is that what your life was about at 19? So there, that was really the point where it had reached that point and I was with um it doesn't come naturally I've never been asked I've never I've actually I've never shared my story so much of my work is about other people's stories so it's interesting for me to articulate this for the first time but it reached that point there was one milestone night in there were it was like a converted hotel where there was a lot of prostitution happening and I had moved in there and in order to pay my rent, um, I was having to sleep with the friends of the guy that was running this establishment, right? So so essentially he was pimping me out and pumping me um, full of drugs. I had a friend come and stay with me in the hotel and um, I woke up the morning after a night that I can't remember to find that she had been brought into so kind of sucked into it she wasn't in my room I found her in the room of someone she couldn't remember what had happened she was covered in her own vomit she was really poorly she was she had been unconscious throughout points of the night and that frightened me so much that I my life choices had caused harm to a friend of mine who wasn't making those same choices as me and I'd put her in that situation. And, and that was my moment of stepping away. And I think that I was young enough. I had come from a good enough, a stable enough background to fortunately be given a second chance to have the support I needed, to have the medication I needed, to have counselling and, and all of those things. And I entirely stopped taking drugs I stopped using I stopped drinking I stopped socializing with all of those people and and that was a a big a big game-changing time how how do you do that I mean just I know that we've kind of skipped through your life in Mm. a matter of 25 minutes in terms (laughs) of you know I, I I love the idea that you talk about your family being loving and supporting and compassionate but they couldn't stop you that, you know, the abuse and the challenges that you went through, that didn't stop you. You ended up in this environment where people were being abused and abusers, but it wasn't until your friend, you witnessed it happening to someone else that you didn't think it should have happened to, that you decided to stop. But how do you stop? How do you break out of that cycle? You know, I'm sure there are people listening who want to hear much more details about you know, your journey, because that's what people want. They, they, they love listening to the nitty gritty. They love to hear the, the, the real deep challenges. But I don't want to go there. I just want to know how at that moment when you witness your friend going through what, what you were already going through and almost accepting it sounds like that was your life, that you decided, no, this isn't what's supposed to happen to her and you didn't want it. So how do you break that? How do you... Because this is what puts you into such a brilliant position to do the stuff that you're doing, which we will talk about in a minute. But how do you do that? How do you just walk away from taking drugs? How do you just walk away from the lifestyle that you were living and not get dragged back into it? Because the guys that you meet coming out of prison, it's so easy for people to be dragged in. So how did you how did you find the resilience not to do that, Lily? 
I asked for help and that's where it began. I it was at such a pivotal point where in my head it was either get me out of this situation, I need help, even though I can't see a way out or a solution and I'm so conditioned to this way of living, thinking, being, it was either that or it was suicide. It was and those were my choices. Those are my choices. And, and I knew that I had the the love of a family who were willing to respond to, to me asking for help. And all I had to do was ask that question. I didn't know what was going to come next. I didn't know what that help would be. But I was very fortunate that when I asked for help, it was offered to me. And I had to just take it one day at a time. And that almost meant for me going, I'm I'm just going to be, I'm going to be a teenager. I'm going to allow you to, to take some control over my life again and bring it all, all back in and start to engage with the root cause of the problem. And I feel so, so lucky and grateful that I caught it when I did. Because years and years and years and years of that, as so many of the men that I work with have had, in fact, it's all they've ever known most of the time, it's very hard to start making those small changes and get back to that route. So it was divine intervention, good timing, but it all came from me asking for help and then engaging with it when it came my way. And you were 19, 19, 20 at the time. I was, yeah, I mean, I was 18, 19, and then 20. Yeah, so it was it was 18, 19. It, it's quite a frightening thing to hear, actually, as much as it is an exciting thing to hear when you said, I asked for help. Something as simple as that is so hard. It's so hard for people, I find, in that world, this world, and in other worlds that have nothing to do with crime or justice or drugs, it's so, so hard for people to ask other people or to reach out and ask people for help. And yet when they do and they get that help, their lives are changed dramatically. I know from my own experience how terrifying it is to ask somebody for help, especially when you think you can do it yourself, especially when you think you're okay, especially when you think it's not you, it's not me, it's somebody else that's the problem. So it's brilliant that you were able to to do that at such a young age because there's very few teenagers out there who do ask for help because they have all the answers. You know, they already think that they know what's what and they're only kids. Thanks for sharing that that part of your, your story, Lily. It's, it's really interesting and I'd like to find out more. But by asking for help, you started on a different path. No doubt you cleaned yourself up. Because for those who can't, silly, she's, you know, very healthy looking. She's not drug looking. So whatever she did in the past, whatever you have of an image, it's not what, what Lily is. And I've met Lily, so I can testament to that. You started on this path where you ended up working for this charity. What does that involve? Tell me what you do on a day-to-day basis when you're doing the work that you do today. So it is, it's a criminal justice charity. So there aren't very many. That is the first thing to say. And, and we are very fortunate as a charity that our office is based inside a prison. 
So we do a number of things, but predominantly our work is focused on reducing reoffending rates. And we have a program that supports that. And that is based on the seven pathways to rehabilitation. Before we talk about that seven pathways, let's just tell people what the reoffending rates, because I was reading and the statistics, and I'm not expecting you to come up with the data or the statistics because they change depending on where you read it. But in reality, we are talking about 60% of um, offenders or ex-prisoners end up going back to prison within two years of release. And that has and that happens for a number of reasons. And those statistics vary depending on the age group, the period of time prisoners are in prison. What, what's your take? I mean, because as I was saying or thinking, you know, we spend 15, 20 billion pounds a year on trying to keep people within the criminal justice system. And yet we spend very little. And I doubt your charity gets anything from the government to do the important work that you do. And you can tell me about that in a minute. But what's your take on reoffending rates and recidivism, you know, people ending up going back to prison? So the statistics change. You're absolutely right. Um, they are consistently above 50% within a, a two-year period, but they will change depending on which parts of the country and, like you say, age and all of those different subcategories, but they are high. Every offender that I have worked with has been a frequent flyer in some way shape or form and it is not <laughs> sounds like they travel business class on <laughs> BA or something like that they you are mean they're in and out they are through the doors I mean that's why they call it a revolving door right because it's a huge huge problem and you know they will obviously I, I get to work with the prison officers and the prison guards inside the prison and they themselves they know and they see the same faces coming out and in and out and in. And there are a number of factors that that we will talk about that affect that. But however bad you think the problem of reoffending is, increase it. <laughs> increase that that understanding because it is a huge problem. You mentioned that you, you go into the prison. The priority of the charity that you work with is to reduce reoffending. So... Tell me more about this day-to-day job of what you do to try and do such important fundamental work. So typically um, the programme is a through-the-gate programme and that means that we work with offenders pre-release and post-release. So that whole journey through the prison gates and into the community. The process will begin with and and let me also say we we will take referrals not based on whether we think that there is a, a a good chance of success right so so we will look at anyone whatever nature of offending what however many times they may have been in or out of prison however many times they may have been referred to us we will not discriminate we will continue to work with individuals that are asking for our help So they don't get any kind of time off their sentence for engaging with us or anything like that. These are are purely people that want our support. So it starts in non-COVID times. Kind of access inside the prison has been tricky in the last couple of years and the charity has really had to change some of the key functions. 
but typically we will work with um, offenders six weeks before they're due to be released. And that just starts with a meeting, a meeting, a conversation, finding out exactly what the areas of need are for that individual. What are they worried about coming out of prison? What's going to be waiting for them? Do they have friends? Do they have family? Have they got somewhere to stay? Have they got a history of of drug and alcohol abuse? What are the circumstances that they're going to be met with on the other side of that gate? And once we have that information, we start to make a plan. What can we do to support those areas of need? Can we build a rapport? It's a mentorship program above all. And that comes from having a really open, honest rapport with the individual and from asking those questions. And it takes commitment on both sides to be really honest. So we do the the kind of six weeks of work leading up to release. And that can be going in, you know, as much as once a week and sitting down and kind of having an hour's meeting um, with the, the resident and then we will meet them at the gate on the day that they are released. What is the most prominent thing that they say to you when you're in the prison and you're sort of saying, what are your needs? What do you want? What, what, what are your struggles? What are your challenges? What do you fear when you get out of prison? And I suspect that most of the guys you meet are not all doing a similar sentence that you have guys at various stages in their custodial sentence, whether it's lifers coming to the end of a life sentence or somebody who's done a short period. I mean, you tell me. But what do you find is the common thread with most of the guys? Or isn't there one? I don't know. Is it housing? Is it employment? Is it relationships? Is it the fear of going out after many years in prison? I mean, what do you think in your experience, Lily? The big one, you've said it there, is housing. That's the immediate concern and worry because that comes as a higher need than anything else. Where is it that I'm going to go? Where where can I go? If I, if I don't have a house or my mum won't let me stay or, you know, I've been in and, and served a life sentence and I no longer have a home, where am I going to go? On that night, the first night, What's that going to look like for me? That's the big worry. That's the number one that that we see nine times out of 10. And then that's closely followed by finance, debt. What's my, I think that they are released with um, about £47.50. Um, <laughs> that's not a lot. That's not a lot of money. And if they don't have money waiting for them, what are they going to do? So it's these immediate things and then you get kind of the the kind of third and fourth most common ones are drink drugs and and relationships so you know maybe part of their part of their offending was to do with um a domestic issue with a partner and what am i going to do if i if i come across that person again but the big one is is accommodation it's housing where am i going to go it's interesting because I suspect that people listening to this will feel that it is a requirement of the government 
to rehouse these individuals as they're being released if like you say they were involved in something where they can no longer go back to their home or they lost their flat or mum and dad doesn't want them back or whatever their circumstances if they don't have accommodation to go to surely it is what well, I'd think and I suppose most people would think that it is the responsibility of the authorities to make sure that individuals being released from prison have somewhere to go that's habitable. I'm not talking about a hole in the ground or a hole in the wall kind of thing. They've just been released from from a cell. And I should caveat this all by sort of saying we recognise that they've committed crimes, we recognise that there are victims involved, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's another conversation. Do the government have a responsibility? I mean, what's your experience? Do you find that they assist and help? I should say that Lily at this point raises her eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes and no. What we tend to, to see happen is immediately on release, if there are some obvious factors that make an individual vulnerable, if there are some obvious risk factors, and that's both risk to society and risk to to themselves, then they will be, there's approved premises where they can be for, for kind of anywhere up to about eight to 12 weeks. That could be anywhere, wherever there is space available for them, anywhere in the country. And there are emergency accommodations. Now, now these these referrals happen, like I say, when there are some obvious factors that make an individual vulnerable, perhaps mental health, but then 90% of, of, of inmates have mental health problems written on paper. But if they have particular criteria, they will be given emergency accommodation. Now, that only lasts for a short period of time. What you do from the emergency accommodation is you have to make an application to be housed to have some kind of mid to long term solution and you would think that there is a duty to put that in place the majority of the time the response to an ex-offender applying for housing applying to the the council the government's policy is to deem an offender intentionally homeless. So the fact that they have committed a crime makes them intentionally homeless. And if you're intentionally homeless, they won't house you. And it's a really big problem. And sometimes an individual won't qualify for emergency accommodation, again, on the basis that they are intentionally homeless. So at the point they chose to commit a crime, they chose to make themselves without an abode. And it's something we come up against time and time again. There have been people in our our organisation who have had a gate meet with a a client. They've gone through the motions of that first day of release and they've had to leave them street homeless because there is nowhere for them to go. It's a direct link back to prison. You get lucky. You get lucky with some. But You, you talk about the kind of the gate meet. So you've worked with a prisoner trying to work out as much as you can. What what I'm just interested a little bit about what support you and the charity get to do the work that you do. I mean, you don't have to give me the details in terms of the finances, but I mean, do you get any support or is it all voluntary on a voluntary basis? I mean, how, how does that work so that you can do the work, the important work? 
that you're doing, which is try not just trying to find accommodation for an ex-prisoner, but trying to prevent the next victim from that offender. If you don't get them in accommodation, they're going to go and break into someone's home or do something that we're trying to stop them doing and, you know, that vicious cycle. So what support do you get to do the work that you're doing inside the prison? The CEO, Shell, is amazing. She is amazing. She's been with the charity for a very long time and she's fantastic. And she works very hard along with the the trustees and the rest of the organisation to um, find funding wherever possible. And we really rely on that as an organisation. We have a very small number of paid staff members. The bulk of the organisation and the work that we do happens through volunteers. So we're able to give a, a, a fantastic and accredited training program to train up these volunteers. But these are people who put themselves forward to say, I'm going to do this, this job. I'm going to take on this role. They are the people who will do the gate meets, who will meet within the community. And basically they are vessels of communication and advocacy. And it's about liaising with probation and housing and all of these other agencies to be the voice of the individual that we're working with. And it's interesting, actually, I was in the prison itself today and yesterday, and there are a lot of new staff coming through, new prison um, officers. And when I say I'm, you know, I I work for, for Sussex Pathways, People really don't know who we are or what we do. And a big part of, of my work at the moment is increasing that visibility so so that we are more well-known and people know to use us and come and knock on our door and refer people through to us. But we get a mixed response from these other agencies that, that we really rely on. So sometimes when we are working with probation, they really are grateful for the work that we do. And they will want to work together and um, kind of cross over and and be in communication. And um, they see the real benefit in that. And others, they don't like really engaging with us as a third agency. And that makes our job really hard because, again, you have to push. But we're heavily, heavily dependent on on funding and on (laughs) the time and incredible generosity of the the volunteers that you know give their lives to 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 this role so it's not something that is in-house it's not uh, we are not employed by the prison itself we're very much an independent agency working within the prison trying to filter out and this is obviously in agreement with the governor or director of that prison who recognises that the work you do can help some of the prisoners. So they, they kind of recognise that, which is something to clap our hands at, you know, because not all governors or directors in prisons would allow you into their prison because for whatever reason. I just find it incredible that given the important work that you're doing, especially partly voluntarily, you, you know, that it is something that the authorities would be able to either financially invest in or at least partner with you so that every prisoner, as they come through the gate, coming in to do their sentence or serve their time, are made aware that on their way out, 
there is this charity that they can go to to discuss their their needs. And I know you can't address every prisoner's problems and other prisoners will, you know, drug rehab might be the key to their 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 saviour or, or whatever it is. It just seems incredible that I, I just find it incredible that these kinds of charities don't get the kind of support that they should get. When a prisoner I think it, is gone- you touch on something that is a much more fundamental issue because the people that are employed and commissioned to do this work so i mean you're talking the people directly in in the the non-civilians let's say so you've got prison officers and and prison guards probation officers police the idea of the seven pathways to to rehabilitation is something that should be taught and included in the training i mean that's that's the theory is that actually everybody in the role their individual role in the justice system should have knowledge of the work that we are doing to implement it in their own practice. But if you say that the seven pathways to to change or the the seven pathways to rehabilitation, people don't know what what that is. And neither will my listeners. So tell us, what is the seven pathways to rehabilitation or or whatever? And I'll make sure I get this to as many prison officers and governors as I can. (laughs) They are very simple. So um, these, they're kind of seven key points that the government social exclusion unit kind of coined when researching the the reasons for reoffending after release from prison. And they are accommodation, attitudes, thinking and behaviour, children and family. And that can also be that your, your larger community as well. Drugs and alcohol, education and training finance and debt and health including mental health so kind of health as a a whole picture now they are coined as the seven key pathways factors issues that link to reoffending and do you have to is it something that you would have to address all seven in order to succeed in stopping someone from reoffending, or is it you know it might just be accommodation for one guy accommodation and drugs for another etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm, yeah it's it's varied some some need support with all of the above and that's a slightly longer term support that that they would be requiring but also how do you measure success in terms of reoffending okay you can look at it as a two-year window but for for some individuals, they might have a, a past or a history of being released from prison, coming back in a month later. You know, I've had I've had guys say to me, this is the longest I've ever been out. And it's only been three months, you know, or somebody who really struggles not to get recalled in that first, you know, in, in the first early days of, of being released and being on licence and keeping up with the licence conditions. And they might just need someone to help them understand their licence conditions. So, you know, we've got more than 50% of prisoners in the UK are functionally illiterate. They have a, a, a literacy age of 11 or, or less. So they're released from prison, they're handed documents, license conditions, appointments, places to be, they immediately are going to fail and they'll be recalled back into prison. So the need varies. 
the idea of success varies. We might have someone come back through again and again and again, and finally they get it. Finally, this time they stay out. We might have someone who, you know, stays out for a year, two years, three years, and goes back in. But it's positive change. It's good that you see it that way because most people would have given up on those individuals. Tell me briefly about the work that you do in the community with these guys. So you meet these guys at the gate. What have you had to do personally in yourself with any of the prisoners that you or your colleagues uh, have worked with to, to assist them? I mean, you told the story earlier on where, you know, some have had to just leave ex-prisoners on the streets because they couldn't get accommodation, which is is shocking, really. But what other experiences, good and bad, have you been through, Lily? The very first thing that I will do is I will I'll give them a cigarette. <laughs> and that really sets the tone for the day. We can breathe and relax and they think, oh, okay, you you get me. You, you know, I feel I feel good in this situation because it's a very overwhelming day. Release day is not what you might expect. I'm sure it is for some people, but actually you don't kind of skip through the prison gates screaming freedom and I'm liberated and <laughs> you know but it's, it's I'm glad you say that actually because I suspect that's what most people who are immune to yeah. coming out of prison or anything to think they think on the day of release you jump for joy what's the first thing you did how exciting was it what did it feel like but you're giving us some reality check here by sort of saying for most people that's not what it's like no not at all and you know I thought I imagined that and I'm sure that's how it's portrayed, you know, in, in lots of ways. But if you really connect with it, it's frightening. It's scary. It's overwhelming. Even, you know, with or without a support network to meet you there. So, but for these individuals, they often don't have that. And if we weren't there, they'd be coming out to the world after months, years, decades for the first time having come from an environment that is regimented, disciplined, routined, they are told what they can and can't do, all of a sudden to be given freedom again, that's frightening. That's frightening. And being able to have these gate meets, you can do things like stop. You can stop. You walk out of the prison, you stop, you sit down on a bench before we do anything Let's just check in. Let's take a breath. Let's have a cigarette. Let's just be. How are you feeling? What's going on for you? This is the plan of the day. Let's take it one thing at a time. Usually it's quite a short-lived sat on the bench having a cigarette because we've got to get to an appointment quite quickly. <laughs> but, you know, you, you're yeah. navigating public transport and that might have changed drastically since the last time that they were out in the world. Yeah, and, and then the first port of call is, is usually going to their probation appointment and, and making sure that they know where they're going, how to get there and that they get there on time. That's the, that's the first step of the day, but it is it's a tiring day. It's a tiring day. When does it go wrong for you? What, what, what do you find are 
the most challenging for, for, for you? And, and that can come in all different shapes and sizes, as, as you know. But what do you find is the most challenging? Is it when, I don't know, you come across um, an individual who you feel so sorry for or you feel so helpless to not be able to help? Or is it the guy that's got the gift of the gab and you think, you know, I wish this guy would just shut up and let me help him because he needs help but won't admit it? Is it the guy that... He can't wait to get out to hit his first drug again after maybe a dry period or alcohol or something. I mean, what are the challenges? Or is it, or is it, you know, at the end of the day, Lily, saying goodbye, walking away, knowing you've done the best that you can, but having turned around and looked back at this guy, you just think he's going straight back within months. I mean, what is it? It's all of those things and more. It's a really key point for anybody doing this kind of work is is to have boundaries and they are both practical boundaries because it can be intimidating you know it can it can be intimidating to be sat next to a violent offender right especially as a young woman that requires a degree of mental preparation and practical boundaries you know So there are all of these things to consider about yourself and making sure you feel safe. I personally cannot adopt the attitude of, despite all of the conversations we're having, I can see that you're going to go straight back in. If I thought like that, there would be no point. It is only through choosing to believe that that person is going to carry on making better choices that you're able to engage with them in a positive way. Why do you give these guys a second chance? These individuals, people that make bad choices, poor choices, people that end up for one reason or another in the justice system are nine times out of ten broken people. Like I was a broken person and I I chose to come away from that situation not as a victim but empowered to change. And that started through me asking for help. And I have been able to take with me through my past and my experiences with men, the ability to to choose to see an individual as a whole as beyond just their behaviour. There are so many factors that lead to an individual ending up in prison an individual ending up in a life of crime, in a fraternity of criminals. The social injustices in in the UK is a big part of that. The epidemic of, of depression and mental health that are being experienced by men in this country, I think 76% of suicide in the UK were male suicide attempts. Like these... These factors contribute to something that goes beyond you're a bad person who's made a bad choice and you deserve to be punished. And if you yourself as an individual in the justice system have got to a point where you've asked for help, like I asked for help, you deserve to be given a chance, whether that's a second chance, third chance, it goes on until you're ready to to make those changes. And for me, it's service. It's that 12 step in the 12 step program, acts of service. 
And I think that that's how there will be lasting change. You look at the whole person, not just the crime. What what was it like for you the very first time you went into a prison to meet the guys that you worked with? I mean, I don't know if throughout your teenage years when you were going on that very dangerous path, you went to visit guys in prison, but that is very different from actually going into the prison wings. And, you know, despite people's fascination with true crime, etc., very, very few people have actually been inside a prison. But as a female going into a male prison, young female going into a male prison you know people often think well that's so dangerous that's so threatening etc so just share with the audience the listeners what it was like for you going in for the first time I've never had so much meaningful eye contact than that day never in my entire life walking into the prison standing in front of you are brothers, husbands, partners, sons, uncles, <laughs> friends. And that's all you can see because you're kind of out of the drama of it. And there are these people, these men standing standing in front of you. And, and I remember walking onto a, a prison wing for the first time and just everybody looks you in the eye. These men just wanted to be seen they jump at the opportunity to just have a conversation with you, to, to share parts of their story, to, to, to feel something, to feel seen or, or heard or like they even exist. And I came out of the prison and I cried and cried and cried just because it was a place full of so much emotion. And of course, it's scary and threatening, especially as like quite a small framed young woman you know, and they'll whistle and they'll make comments and, and all of those things. that And that does happen and it is frightening, but there's no time to be frightened or, or feel threatened because you're at people's lowest point in their lives. Like, like that's an, an honourable place to be, to be walking through the, the corridors of, of people's deepest, most darkest hours, days, months, years. To be in that smell, to, to smell it, to see it, it's it's a whole world of its own and, and a world that, you know, people don't think about. They're away, hidden from society. And, you know, yes, there is an important ele- element of, of punishment and of needing to keep these, these men locked away. But it's a powerful place to be. It was very overwhelming. I felt very very connected actually it is a place of of connection above above anything else do you think there are i mean you tell me are there more organizations like sussex pathways doing the work that you do are there because i'm imagining that it's such an important job and you articulate it in such an important way such a profound way that every prison in the country must have an organisation, a charity like yours in there, whether the guards want them to be there or not, working with these prisoners in order to sort of address the problems that need to be addressed in order to reduce the chances of them going out and committing further crimes. Is it happening everywhere, Lily? It's not happening everywhere. It's not on the, not in the way that we operate, which is really trying to, to offer this full programme through the gate before pre and post release and you know we when we have capacity we we try and work with with other prisons that are not just based in Sussex but 
it is coming in. There are organisations that are doing elements of this work, right? So who are who are tackling, you know, individual elements of those those seven pathways. And I would like to see similar models, similar programs being implemented into the statutory provisions. So actually, you know, if if the prison itself and they do have their own kind of through the gate programs and probation in a lot of places are, are really fantastic. But as a whole, it's stretched. It's underfunded. Even the statutory provisions are underfunded, understaffed. Everybody is overworked. And so the idea of, of there being multiple charities able to come and do the work that we do. I mean, it's, it seems like a faraway reality. And yet the government spend 15 to 20 billion a year on prisons in some way, shape or form. And yet more and more people go back to prison. Recidivism rates haven't changed for decades. What can people who are in Sussex listening to this do or people outside of Sussex who have an interest or a fascination in wanting to do the work that you do? I wouldn't encourage or suggest that people listening to this who have you know, a good mind or a good, you know, because I think you have to be cut out for this sort of work because no doubt not only do you work with some very emotional guys, you're also working with dangerous guys, but equally you're working with some very manipulative individuals who have committed some horrendous crimes and you will have to find out the details of some, you know, paedophiles, sex offenders, all sorts of different types of criminals, you know, not just shoplifters and drug addicts. So, you know, it, it's not for the faint-hearted, I would argue. It's also not for those who don't have the strength of mind and character to not only deal with everybody's burden, but then be able to sort of walk through your own front door and leave it behind. There are lots of things that you have to be admired for, because having sat down all day in a prison, listening to guys offload and then go home and you've got your own kind of washing up to do or cooking to do or, you know, whatever it is you do, um, that, that can't be easy for any guy or girl that comes out and does what you do. But for those that are interested in supporting Sussex Pathways, getting involved, offering, you know, donations or voluntary work, what, what, what would you suggest they do? Have a look at what is going on in your local prison. That is where it starts. Find out what provisions, what charities, you know, what agencies and organisations you can get involved with to support some area of rehabilitation or mentorship or, you know, even if it's letter writing. There are so many ways that civilian people can get involved and volunteer to support people who are in the justice system in some way. Um, you know, it's not always glamorous and it's not always really thrilling and exciting and, and full of drama. It's it's hard and it's not for the faint hearted. But there are areas if you, you know, have a love for English. I know there are charities that work in prisons where you can you go and you, you help teach an offender how to read or how to write or help them learn other transferable skills. Help them, you know, if you if you uh, run a business link up with the prison, offer apprenticeships. You know, the, the prisons will often help support you if you want to get involved. If you think you have something to offer, you probably do, right? You've just got to make the contact because no one's going to reach out to you and ask, right? So so just have a look, 
use the internet, you know, phone the prison, find out what's going on, because everybody can offer something. Everybody can, even if it is just companionship. That sometimes can be enough. Final question from me. At the beginning, you talked about studying law, doing a a, a sort of remote open university course. What what is it you want to become? What is it you want? What what is the end game? Because I know that your your journey hasn't finished yet. What is the end game? Because that is quite a study, isn't it? What do you want to do with it? It is. And I'm very, I'm, you know, I'm very passionate and I'm learning a lot about access to justice and the, the way that social injustice impacts the justice system and and studying law gives me a really good toolkit to be able to support people to understand how all these systems work there are lots of options there are lots of options but I would love to to one day be in a position where I can make fundamental changes to the justice system you know I would love to 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 be a governor you know, to be a prison governor or or to be in a decision-making role. I'm not quite sure what, what that role is yet, but I think that I want to see fundamental change so that it's not just volunteers that are taking on these roles. And there are prisons all around the world that work so incredibly, as you know, as you have documented and experienced, that really focus on this this thing of rehabilitation and it is successful it is really really good so one day one day I'll be um I'll be a decision maker and I'll I'll make some changes and I, I really believe that that will happen good luck Lily thanks so much for 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 sharing your personal story your work and your ambitions let's hope that you can find that position where you can make decisions because I'm sure the decisions you make will be the right ones. Thanks, Lily, for joining me on my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. The commitment required for the kind of work Lily does is admirable. Not only is she helping to prevent a person from ending up back in prison, but it's also preventing future victims of crime. Whatever our views are about crime and punishment, I think we all agree that reducing reoffending is a key component for any criminal justice system. I also think we get it wrong here in the UK and should be doing much, much better. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope Lily's inspired you to think about how you can get involved to make a real difference. I want to take this moment to thank you, the listener, for sharing your comments about my podcast. Here's a few of those comments I've taken from the Apple Podcast Rate and Review comments. Football God 007 said, and I quote, These podcasts are some of the best you will ever listen to. A really good insight to people's private lives you would never hear about if it wasn't for Raphael. Unquote. Thanks football god 007 and I love that tag too. Chessie13 wrote and I quote Really enjoyed this podcast, really helping with my university course of criminology and psychology. Really an eye-opening podcast helping me to understand different sides of a case. Unquote. Glad it's giving you an alternative perspective Chessie. And finally this message from Liam. And I quote, 
I came across this by following Raphael on Instagram. I got into the first episode and so much of this resonated with me. What I gathered from it is that we all need to be each other's light in the darkness. I reached out to Raphael after listening and he was kind enough to get back to me with some very kind words. One prominent point that sticks out is direction. You give a man direction and it gives him purpose. You give him purpose, you give him breath in life. Yes, maybe some aren't able to be helped in the way others can, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't at least try. Unquote. Liam, that resonates with my conversation in this episode. Now, I appreciate that you find these interviews inspirational and insightful, and so I want to hear from more of you. If you want me to read your comment on this podcast, please leave a review comment on the podcast or send me a direct message via Twitter or Instagram at Raphael Rowe. Please share this episode with your friends, your family and colleagues. And if you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. So we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. If you want to connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J Road Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.